we have a stand-up over here. So, hey, it's great to have all of you back uh, tonight, and I appreciate you coming out for the evening service. And uh, I will be covering the pulpit for Pastor Tony for, <clears throat> excuse me, tonight, and then, of course, next Sunday and the next two Wednesdays I'll be uh, preaching here at um, East Bay Baptist Church. I'll tell you something, it's great to be home. It's great to be home with your own church family, amen, yeah. and fellowship with your own church family. Right. I was supposed to be in Kentucky for the next uh, two weeks, but that did not work out. It wasn't God's plan, amen. And so the Lord worked it out, and I appreciate uh, Pastor Tony and Brother Tom working it out for me to uh, be here to uh, minister to all of you the Word of God. And I'm really looking forward to it. I love teaching and preaching God's Word, amen. Yeah. I love teaching Bible prophecy. I love teaching about the soon return of Jesus Christ because the Bible says it's our blessed hope, amen. It's the blessed hope of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, yeah. in which Paul the Apostle said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Then he says in verse 13, Looking, Brother Chris, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So we have a blessed hope to look forward to. So we, we sing songs like Face. To face. That's going to be a reality one day. Amen. It's going to be a reality because we will be face to face with Christ, our Savior, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world who died on the cross for the sins of all. What's my definition of all? All. There you go. <laughs> I love it. All means all, and that's all all means. He died on the cross for the sins of all. Salvation is sufficient for all, but efficient for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Just as I did on April 22nd, 1988, 10.49 a.m. on a Thursday morning, and God used that guy right there. Amen. 35 years ago. That man you see sitting right there, Christopher J. Barrows, led me to the Lord when him and I worked at the Animal Rescue League in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And he was transferred over from another animal shelter in Acushnet, Massachusetts, to where I was working, and I had to train this guy, and he just would not shut his mouth. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, every single day he'd come into work and he'd preach and preach and preach to the point where I was getting so frustrated, so agitated that I went. What was our boss's name? Remember the? Remember our boss's? I know it's been a while. Mr. God Godfrey? Godfrey. I remember how he spoke. Very soft, monotone voice. And I'm like, Mr. Godfrey, listen. I said, we need to talk. He said, what's going on? I'm like, this guy that you had transferred over here. He keeps trying to convert me. He keeps preaching to me. He just won't shut his mouth. You need to talk with this guy. So Mr. Garfield sat down multiple times with Chris Barrows and told him, you need to calm down, Chris. You know, August is getting a little upset. You know, just you need to just tone it down a little bit, you know. Did it stop this guy? Absolutely not. Now, I'm not proud to say this, but, you know, I'd come back. I'd go to work the next morning with a major hangover coming back from a heavy metal uh, rock concert, and my head would still be spinning in the clouds, man. And the first thing that I have to come up with, uh, come to is this guy right here. He said, August, if you died today, would you be in heaven or hell? <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing you have to tell me this early in the morning. And he just would not stop. 
until one day, one day, one day, Holy Spirit, man, just he just broke right through that bad soil, man. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, we're, we're over here picking up the dog stuff. You know, that was our job, picking up the dog stuff, feeding the dogs, watering the dogs. And then, uh, you know, and, and my brother, uh, my oldest brother, died a few days earlier of a drug deal gone bad. And, uh, and that was really weighing heavy on my mind that I was, you know, in order to just escape reality, I would just get so intoxicated. And uh, there was a reason why. God brought that man there for a reason. God, I mean, God brought Chris Barris for such a time as this. And uh, I remember we went into, what was that room it was called again? The, um, the quarantine room. Way it was way, way in the back. And we went into that quarantine room. We sat down. And uh, right there, he led me to the Lord Jesus Christ 35 years ago. I just contacted your brother, Mike, by the way. He said that you were here. He was like, man, I wish I was here right now. So, But uh, what, what a blessing. And then to see him here uh, this morning just really I just, just rocked my world. It's been, what, 15 years? Uh, <laughs> At least 15 years since I've seen you, man. And uh, But what a blessing it is to have you with us, Chris, and we really appreciate you. And, uh, you know, this is a really good church. I love this church. I love East Bay Baptist Church. I love our pastor, uh, Pastor Tony. Please pray for him. Uh, him and Don are in uh, Pensacola. They'll be there for the next couple of weeks. I hope they enjoy themselves out there because he needs a vacation as well. Amen. And so I'm glad that he would trust me. Uh, to stand behind this sacred desk, this pulpit, to preach uh, God's word. And so I really do uh, appreciate that. Uh, as I said this morning, in two weeks I'll be leaving for Israel. Uh, this will be my 34th trip to the Holy Land. And I am really looking forward to going back to the land of promise, the land of prophecy, and in the future the land of primacy. Because one day Israel will be the head of the nations and not the tail of the nations as she is right now because that's where the kingdom is going to emanate from. So I'm going back to Israel June 20th, coming back on July 3rd. Please keep those dates in mind. Write them down and pray for Dr. Todd Baker and myself as we'll be leaving for the Holy Land and sharing the gospel. As I say all the time, I want to see the Jews in the pews. But in order for the Jews to be in the pews, the Jews need to hear the good news, the Chabesorah as they say in uh, Hebrew. And so Sarel Tours, which is a major Israeli tour company out there, owned by Jewish believers in Yeshua, in Jesus. They provide the complete Hebrew Bibles for us, and they're going to deliver them right to our hotel in Netanya, as they uh, usually do. And we'll pick up those Bibles, and we're just going to start going into these shopping malls in Tel Aviv, in Netanya, in Tiberias, Haifa, Nazareth, and finally in Jerusalem, planting the seed of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Israeli Jews and Israeli uh, Arabs. So please keep us in prayer that the Lord will open many, many doors for us while we're out there. And he does, amen. One of my favorite places to evangelize there in Israel is when we're in Tiberias. We get into our car rental. We drive all the way north to the Golan Heights. The Golan, the word Golan is mentioned four times in the Old Testament. And the word Bashan, referring to Golan, is referred to 53 times in the Old Testament. We drive all the way to the highest mountain in Israel, Mount Hermon. It's called the Eyes of Israel. It stands about 9,222 uh, feet high. And there is an IDF base on Mount Hermon. Israeli uh, soldiers are stationed there. So Todd and I will pick up some potato chips and chocolate bars and waters as well as the word of God, amen, and we'll go up to 
Mount Hermon, and uh, we start sharing the gospel with these IDF soldiers. Two years ago, one of them that were over there looked right at Todd Baker and I, and he said, do you guys remember me? And we're like, oh, I'm not really sure. He says, you guys gave me a Bible. You gave me potato chips, waters, chocolate bars. He says, but I'm here to tell you this. After everything that you said, he said, two weeks later, I put my faith and trust in Yeshua as my Savior and Messiah. Mm. That's what it's all about, amen? The other Israeli soldiers standing right there like, what did you say? He was like, shocked. Todd and I were shocked. I, I had tears coming down my eyes. I couldn't believe he said that to us. That's what we do. We plant that seed. Uh, the soul winning in Israel is totally different than how you do it here in the West, amen? You've got to approach it very delicately uh, over there. And so, uh, but I love sharing this with IDF soldiers stationed on Mount Hermon. I tell them, I said, you know what happened here 2,000 years ago? Mazeh? What? I said, Yeshua, Jesus was transfigured right on this very mountain 2,000 years ago. How do you know that? I'm like, what biblical town is below us right now? Well, Caesarea Philippi. Oh, so you go to Matthew 16, and what happened at Caesarea Philippi? Peter confesses Jesus to be what? The Mashiach ben Elohim, the Christ, the son of the living God. Then you go to chapter 17. What do we read? Peter takes with, uh, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John to a high mountain. The highest mountain in Israel is right there, Mount Hermon. That is where the transfiguration took place. They say Mount Tabor, but Mount Tabor is only 6,000 feet high. It's not the eyes of Israel. Mount Hermon is the eyes of Israel. It's the tallest mountain in Israel. That is where the transfiguration took place. So I, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to going back to the Holy Land uh, in two weeks for my 34th trip to um, Israel. So please keep that in prayer. And if you want to help financially with that, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Even though my airfare is all taken care of, my car rental, the get all that's taken care of. We have other expenses out there with lunches and other things of that sort. And so if you would like to help out with that, that would be greatly appreciated. Let's go once again to the book of Daniel. This time we'll be in Daniel chapter number two. Great to see uh, uh, Joe and Betty LaRoche here. Uh, with us, we've been praying for Betty, amen. We love these two very, very much, and it's a blessing to have them both here with us uh, tonight. And uh, great to have you again, Brother Chris Barrows, being here tonight. Uh, I'm talking about a blast from the past right here. What a blessing it is to have him uh, with us. So, we're going to be in Daniel. Uh, what's that little clicker here? Here we go. Uh, Daniel, we were in the book of Daniel uh, this morning. We read out of Daniel uh, chapter number one. Uh, talking about Daniel, the Jewish prophet of uncompromising. Now we're going to be talking about what language did Yeshua speak. And we're going to look at that this morning, tie it all into Bible prophecy. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read the first four verses of Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, and in verse number 1, it says this, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled. And his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. You might want to circle that. Syriac. O king, Live forever. Tell thy servants a dream, and we will show the interpretation. Let's pray tonight. Father in heaven, thank you once again 
for the opportunity to be in the house of God tonight to uh, openly and freely worship you. Thank you so much, Lord, for the morning services with Brother Tom teaching Sunday school and for the uh, morning message, dear Lord. Thank you for the word of God going forth. And now, Lord, tonight we want to feast on fresh manna from heaven. And I pray that the word of God would go forth tonight and that you would use me as your mouthpiece, Lord, as your vessel, as I stand behind this sacred desk to preach your word. And as I preach the word of God, Lord, help me to stay within the perimeters of the word of God because the moment we go beyond those perimeters, we're going to get into doctrinal trouble. Lord, we want Bible doctrine. We want solid doctrine. As Proverbs 4, 2 says, we want good doctrine. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would uh, dictate to me, give me the, uh, Lord, the, that unction from heaven uh, to preach this message that you would help me to preach it in the spirit and not to preach in the flesh, that everything that is preached tonight would be beneficial to those who are here in person and those that are watching right now via a live stream. And, Lord, if there is someone here tonight and they do not have the assurance of going to heaven when they die. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict their hearts, that they would see their need for the Savior, call upon the name of the Lord, and get saved. Again, be with Pastor Tony and uh, Don as they are in Pensacola, and just pray that your hand be upon them. Give them that rest uh, that they need, uh, that they would come back here in the next couple of weeks, uh, rejuvenated and ready to go, Lord, uh, preaching the word of God here at East Bay Baptist Church. So, Father, thank you for what you are about to do now. And we do ask all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. <clears throat> amen and amen. Many people, I get this question all the time, many people ask, what language did Jesus or Yeshua, Yeshua means what in Hebrew, remember? Salvation, he shall save his people from their sins. What language did Jesus speak in the first century A.D., some 2,000 years ago. Was it Ivrit? Was it Hebrew? Was it Aramaic? Was it Greek? Was it Latin? My Israeli tour guide told me this two years ago when I had my tour group over there in Israel. This is what he told me. He said, August, Jews in the north, in the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee area, Jews who lived north in the Galilee spoke Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew. But the Jews who lived in Jerusalem actually spoke Hebrew. Why? What was in Jerusalem? The temple. The Beit HaMikdash. Jerusalem, where God said in 2 Chronicles 6, 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there forever. Remember what I said uh, this morning? Every Jew that prays, prays in what direction? Jerusalem, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem uh, when he was in uh, Babylon. Jews all over the world pray in the direction of Jerusalem, and Jews in Jerusalem pray in the direction of the Temple Mount. Har Harbayat uh, in the Hebrew, because that's where Solomon's temple stood for 400 years. That's where Herod's temple stood in the time of Jesus Christ for 600 years. So they spoke Hebrew in Jerusalem. The Jews that lived south of Judea, in the city of Jerusalem, they spoke Hebrew. But you got to remember, folks, there was a diverse culture in the Holy Land during the time of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. Many, I'm talking many different dialects. 
spoken at that time. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, all those tongues, all those dialects were spoken. And we see a, a, a case in point in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, when we see those, those, those Grecians, they were known as Hellenists. Remember during the Hellenistic period or during Hellenism when Greek culture and Greek language was introduced there to the Jews in the Holy Land. And when it talks about those Grecians there, we're talking about Jews who came under Hellenism influence, Hellenistic culture or the Greek culture. Many of those Jews adopted uh, the Greek language and they were murmuring against the Hebrews who actually spoke Ivrit, the holy tongue, the Hebrew language, saying that their widows were being neglected in uh, the daily administration. So uh, there were some language divisions there during that time, some 2,000 years ago. What is that? Oh, okay. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus as God in the flesh. Now listen to me. Jesus as God in the flesh would have spoken all four languages. Amen? When dealing with the Roman centurion, when dealing with Pontius Pilate, he would have spoken what language? He would have spoken Latin. So no doubt he knew Latin. When dealing with the Sadducees, who assimilated to Hellenism or to the Greek culture, he would have spoken Greek. The Hellenist Jews who capitulated to Hellenism actually spoke uh, Greek, as we see there in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. When dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus would have spoken what language? Hebrew. He would have spoken Hebrew. The holy native tongue, Hebrew. Because the Pharisees were strict in adhering to the Torah. What's the Torah? The five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or what Christians would call uh the Pentateuch. So when dealing with the Pharisees, he would have spoke his native tongue, the holy tongue, which would have been Hebrew. Now, the thing about the Pharisees is that the Pharisees believed in the afterlife, did they not? They believed in the existence of angels. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. But the Sadducees, under Hellenistic influence, they denied all of that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were known as the council in the New Testament. Remember, Paul stood before the council. He stood before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's pleading his case. But when Paul said, hey, listen, man, I am a Pharisee. Then the Pharisees were like, oh, wait, well, he's one of us. And then the Bible says what? There was a big argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So when we look at um, Acts chapter 23, and verse number 8, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angels nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. The Pharisees looked at the scriptures for their literal interpretation. The Sadducees allegorized, they spiritualized, oh, there's no such thing as angels, a resurrection, or the afterlife, or things of that sort. Folks, there is no doubt Jesus knew all four 
languages of his day. He knew Hebrew, his native tongue, amen? He knew Aramaic. He knew Latin. He knew Greek. Why wouldn't he? He's a creator of the universe, amen? He's a creator of heaven and earth. He's God Almighty in the flesh. He is the king of the Jews. So we know that three of those official languages that were spoken 2,000 years ago would have been Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. You say, August, how do you know that? Do you remember? Uh, let's go to Luke chapter uh, 23 and verse 38, please. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 38. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 23 and verse number 38. Notice what the Word of God says here. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 38. This is at his crucifixion. And uh, in Luke 23, 38, it says this. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of what? Greek. What else? What else? Those were the three main tongues at that time. The Gentiles, they spoke Greek. All those Hellenists. Jews. The Romans, they spoke Latin. And of course, the Jews in Jerusalem, they spoke Hebrew. And what was this saying? This is the king, you got it, brother, the king of the Jews. Melech Hayudin in Hebrew. He is the king of the Jews. But we also see this in um, John chapter 19 and verse number 20. This title then read many of the Jews. For the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was written in Hebrew, Evrit. It was written in Greek and Latin. Those were the three main dialects of Jesus' day uh, some 2,000 years ago. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So we, we started off in Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 4, did we not? The Chaldeans or the Babylonians communicated in Syriac or the Aramaic language, if you will. This was a common language of the Gentile world. It was everyday street language. It was a language of commerce. It was a language of everyday life in Babylon at that time. Folks, when you read the book of Daniel, remember how I told you how to read the book of Daniel? You read the book of Daniel in chronological order. Do you remember the sequence? Someone shout those sequence out to me. 1, now you know who writes my sermons. <laughs> That's how you read the book of Daniel chronologically. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, and 12. But the thing about the book of Daniel is that the book of Daniel is also divided into three vernacular parts. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Hebrew. How do I know that? From Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 2 verse 45, the text is in Hebrew. Why? It's dealing with these four Jewish boys who were taken from Jerusalem all the way into the Babylonian captivity. Remember their names? Daniel. <coughs> You got it. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those four godly Jewish boys. So from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 2 verse 45, the text is in Hebrew because it's dealing with those four uh, Jewish boys. But then God does something. From Daniel chapter 2 verse 46 
all the way to Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, the text changes from Hebrew to Syriac or Aramaic. Why would God do that? Because God is now showing his future program for the Gentile nations of the world in Bible prophecy. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 deal with God's program for the Gentile nations of the world. However, when we get to Daniel chapter 8 verse 1 all the way to Daniel 12, 13, the text changes back from Aramaic to Hebrew. Hebrew. Why? Because God is now showing his future program for Israel and the Jewish people. And what is that future program? Sometime after the rapture of the church, there'll be a what? Seven-year period of tribulation, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse number 7. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. I keep saying this a lot. You need to go on Amazon and purchase a book called The Coming Prince. It was written by the lead detective on the Jack the Ripper case, Whitechapel, East London, 1888. Sir Robert Anderson calculated the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy, and the 69 weeks ended at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Daniel 9.26. So now only one week remains unfulfilled, and that is that future seven-year period of tribulation to come. What's the purpose of the tribulation period? It's threefold. Number one, to put an end to all Gentile world rule. Number two, to bring unbelieving Israel to faith in Jesus as Savior, Messiah. And number three, to destroy the satanic trinity of the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false uh, prophet. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7 show God's program for the Gentile nations. And Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 12 show God's program for Israel and the Jewish people in the end times. So when we go back to the Babylonian captivity here, the Jews during the 70-year Babylonian captivity picked up on Syriac. They picked up on Aramaic for the 70 years that they were there captive in Babylon. But when the Persians destroyed the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C., the Jews took that Aramaic tongue back to the Promised Land with them. And then when Alexander the Great destroyed the Persian Empire in 333 B.C., he introduced Hellenism during what they would call the Hellenistic period to the Jews in the Holy Land. What's interesting, Brother Joe, is that the Jewish historian Josephus Flavius said in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, that when Alexander the Great came into the Holy Land, one of the rabbis met him there and showed him out of the book of Daniel that he was a fulfillment of Daniel chapter number 8. That the Persian Empire would destroy uh, the, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Grecian Empire would destroy the uh, Persian Empire. And they said, Alexander, you are a fulfillment of that prophecy. When I just had my uh, tour over there in Greece about three weeks ago, we were, we were there in Greece. We actually saw the original tomb of Philip of Macedon. You know who Philip of Macedon was? This guy's father, exactly. We were at his actual tomb. And then we're looking at all of these uh, uh, Greek uh, weapons and shields, and we actually saw this golden box that contained his remains with the original crown from 20 
300 years ago. This guy conquered the known world at, at a very, very young age. What, maybe uh, 32, 33 years old? Conquered the known world at a very, very young age. So he would defeat uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then he would introduce Greek culture and the Holy Land, also known as Hellenism. So the Greek, uh, the Jews also picked up on the Greek language. Then in 63, follow over, there you go. Then in 63 B.C., General Pompey, the Roman general, invades the Holy Land. And so now you have the Romans over there in the Holy Land. So now they're all over there speaking Aramaic. They're over there speaking Greek. They're over there speaking Latin because of all of these foreign empires that ruled over the Holy Land at that time. So we see various types of dialects among the Jews in the first century A.D. So I found this on the Euro News website, a, a TV station. In Iraq, can a TV channel keep the language of Jesus alive? And the language that they're talking about is Syriac. They actually, I wanted to play the video, but for some reason I couldn't get it to play. Uh, but they're talking about the Syriac. They use the actual word of the Bible, Syriac. Or the Aramaic. They wanted to keep the Aramaic language alive. No doubt Jesus knew Aramaic. He knew Greek. He knew Latin. But his main tongue was Hebrew. That was his native tongue. That was the tongue that he knew. So it says, can a, can, can a TV channel station keep the language of Jesus alive? A new station in Iraq, ancient Babylon, has been launched to save the ancient, in their words, Syriac language. And they said their goal is to keep the two thousand-year-old Syriac language alive. Now, by the way, that language was in use even during the time of Ezra. Look at Ezra chapter 4 in verse number 7. And in the days of Artaxerxes wrote Bishlam, uh, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of their commanders unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the writing of the letter was written in the what? Syriac, or in the Syriac, Aramaic, and interpreted in the Syria. They took that language from Babylon back into the Holy Land. So no doubt they knew the Aramaic language very, very well. But folks, i got to tell you, only one language has actually been revived. Look at Isaiah 36, 11. What's cool about this verse is when I take my tour groups, Chris, over there to uh, Israel, we go to the uh, old city of Jerusalem, and we actually go to a wall dated back to the time of Hezekiah. Now, the last time Todd Baker and I were there in March, they had the whole thing covered with a white top. I'm not sure what they were doing with that 2,700-year-old wall. That was the wall where this event took place right here. Remember the Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib? Uh, Sennacherib uh, sends his representative, Rabshakeh, to tell Hezekiah, surrender, Hezekiah. Look at what my master have done. He's overthrown all these kingdoms and overthrown all these gods. Do you think your God, the God of Hezekiah, is going to defeat us? Ain't going to happen. Isaiah 36, 11. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Yoah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray unto thy servants in the Syrian language. Syriac, the Aramaic language. For we understand it. We Jews know that language. But he said, we don't want you speaking to us in our holy tongue. Don't speak to us in the Hebrew language. 
We don't want this Gentile speaking to us in the holy tongue, defiling the holy tongue. And speak not to us in the Jews' language. Hebrew. In the ears of the people that are on the... Go to my YouTube channel. August was out. Todd Baker and I were at that 2,700-year-old wall where those Jews were looking down at Rabshakeh and said, speak to us in Aramaic. We understand it. Don't speak to us in the Hebrew language. That is the holy tongue. That is our tongue, and we don't want Gentiles defiling our holy tongue. So they knew Aramaic. They knew the language very well. However, even though these guys in Iraq said, we want to revive Syriac, Aramaic, but folks, only one tongue, a dead biblical tongue, has ever been revived. One tongue has been Revived. And I want you to go with me to Zephaniah 3 9 and see exactly what that tongue is. You ready? Zephaniah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse number 9. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse number 9. I also have my tour guide, Hillel Bar Sadeh, in Israel, say this August, you know, in ancient Hebrew, there are actually no cuss words. No cuss words. In the, if you hear an Israeli cuss today, he's using modern Hebrew to do so. But you can find no cuss words in the ancient Hebrew tongue. And that makes sense because Zephaniah 3.9 says this. God said, for then will I turn to the people, the Jewish people, a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And folks, that tongue has been revived. And God used one man, one man, to single-handedly revive that Hebrew language. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour out them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And God would use one man to single-handedly revive a dead biblical holy tongue. And I love this man. Eliezer ben Yehuda. There's a street named after him in downtown Jerusalem. Ben Yehuda Street. And Patty, when we go there, that's our favorite place to go. That's our destination. Ben Yehuda Street. Eliezer ben Yehuda, ladies and gentlemen, would single-handedly revive a dead biblical language. This guy was thrown in jail for trying to revive the Hebrew language. This guy, even among his own people, the Jews. Threw him in jail under the occupation of the Ottoman Turks at that time. Eliezer ben Yehuda, born January 7th, 1858, died December 16th, 1922. God would use this man right here to revive a dead biblical language despite the persecution, despite the struggles that he went through even among his own people to revive that language. 
This is what Eliezer Ben Yehuda would say, Brother Chris. You come into my house, you don't speak any other language but Hebrew. You don't speak English. You don't speak Arabic. You don't speak French. You speak Hebrew when you come into my house. Even wrote a massive volume, a Hebrew dictionary, the Eliezer Ben Yehuda uh, dictionary with all these Hebrew uh, words in it. But he was born Eliezer Ben Perlman in 1858 in Lutska, Russia. The Jews of his day believed that God would destroy this infidel. Why? He's tampering with the holy tongue. He's tampering with the. We don't want Hebrew to be the, the, the language of daily street conversation. That's limited to the synagogue only, not to everyday street life. This is the holy tongue we're talking about right here. This guy loved his heritage so much that Eliezer Ben Yehuda, and actually he changed his name from Eliezer Yitzhak Perlman to Ben Yehuda. Ben, son, Yehuda, Judah. He is called a son of, actually a son of Judah. The son of Judah. Ben, son, Yehuda, Judah. He changes his name from Eliezer Yitzhak Perman to Eliezer Ben Yehuda, son of Judah. He loved his heritage so very much. His goal was to revive the Hebrew language. He loved his Jewish identity, the biblical language, but he was sorely opposed by the rabbis of his day, thrown in jail by the Turks. I mean, he was being falsely accused by the rabbis, his fellow Jews. Going to the Ottoman Empire. You know, this guy is uh, opposing the Turkish government right here, which he never did. But they arrested him and threw him in jail. And the rabbis would visit him in jail and say, listen, we can get you out of here, but you need to do one thing. Stop tampering with the holy tongue. It will never, ever, ever be the conversation of everyday street life. It will never happen. Well, guess what? God said, I will raise up a pure language. And, folks, that is exactly what happened. Many devoted Jews of that time did not appreciate Ben Yehuda's efforts to resurrect the Hebrew language. They believed that Hebrew, which they learned as a biblical language, should not be used to discuss mundane and non-holy things. In December 1893, Ben Yehuda and his father-in-law were imprisoned by the Ottoman authorities in Jerusalem following accusations by members of the Jewish community that they were inciting rebellion against the government. And then in December 1922, Eliezer Ben-Yehuda, at the age of 64 years old, died of tuberculosis. I mean, he battled with tuberculosis most of his life. And you know where he was buried? He said, I request to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Have you ever seen the thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish graves on the Mount of Olives? There's a reason why they pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be buried on the Mount of Olives, to await resurrection. Zechariah 14.4, where they believe the Messiah's feet will touch the Mount of Olives when he returns back to this earth. We know exactly who that's going to be, amen? Yeshua, that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was the initiator of the first modern Hebrew dictionary known as the Ben Yehuda Dictionary. Want to know what's interesting? Just prior 
to his death. Eliezer ben Yehuda was working on a word for soul. He died while working on the word for soul. And it was translated as nefesh. Nefesh. N-E-F-E-S-H. Can you imagine that? Died while working on the Hebrew translation for soul. Nefesh. You can still buy, you can buy, go on Amazon and buy his um, Hebrew dictionary. You can learn a lot of uh, Hebrew words. Folks, why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because, number one, the Jewish people are back in the land. Number two, the Hebrew tongue has been revived. Hebrew is the official language of the state of Israel today. Number two, Israel is back in the land, but they're back in unbelief. Take my word for it. I've been there 33 times. They are back in unbelief. In preparation for who? For what? The 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That final seven-year period of tribulation to come. Let's close it all up. Let's go back to Daniel. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. We'll, we'll close it all up with this here. And I know you, you, you know this here, but in a Daniel chapter 9, and looking at verse number 24, again, I would recommend you buy the book, The Coming Prince, by Sir Robert Anderson. It was a brilliant, brilliant mind back in his day. Daniel 9.24 uh, tells us this. We have three negative and then three positive in Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks, or a final seven-year period, are determined upon thy people, that would be the Jews, and upon thy holy city, that would be Jerusalem. I don't see how Christians cannot make that connection there. To finish the transgression. In other words, the, the, the transgression of the Antichrist at that time. To make an end of sins, that global iniquity going on during that time, to make reconciliation for iniquity, that would be the death of the Messiah, dying on the cross for the sins of all. Those are the three negative. Now notice the three positive. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that would be the kingdom. To seal up the vision and prophecy. Remember, Daniel was told to seal his prophecy, but John in the book of Revelation was told what? Don't seal the prophecy. The time is at hand. And to anoint the most holy. That's either anointing the Messiah himself or the millennial temple at that time. Look at verse 25. I love using this with the rabbis in Israel. Because they tell us, oh, you Christians got it wrong. Oh, you know how many times I've heard that, Brother Tom? You Christians got it all wrong. You're still waiting for your Messiah. Oh, well, we're still waiting for our Messiah. Your Messiah has come. Our Messiah is yet to come. Well, I'm sorry, but I think you missed the boat here. Verse 25. I love using verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand... That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem prior to the Messiah the Prince, unto the Messiah the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. The commencement point for the 69 weeks goes back to Nehemiah chapter 2, 445 B.C. Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, leaves Persia, goes to Jerusalem to rebuild the streets and the walls of the city. That was a commencement point for the 69 weeks. And then we see the ending point of the 69 weeks in verse 26. And after three score and two weeks, or 69 weeks, the Messiah is what? 
well, Rabbi, you just told me I got it wrong. You just told me that you're still waiting for your Messiah. What is Daniel talking about here? Daniel says after 69 weeks, the Mashiach is cut off. The Messiah is put to death. His death ended the 69 weeks of prophecy. From Nehemiah to the death of the Messiah. We are talking, folks, 69 weeks or 483 prophetical years on the Jewish lunar calendar. 173,888 days from Nehemiah to the death of the Messiah. 69 weeks have already been fulfilled. How many weeks are left? Look at verse 27. Notice a personal pronoun here. And he, he shall confirm, not sign, confirm the covenant with many for. What is that one week, folks? Talk to me. What is that one week? A seven-year period of tribulation. That is still future. But that can't happen yet. You know why? You gotta go. You gotta go. You must be evacuated before that final week commences. And we're talking about the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And by the way, I say this all the time. Well, Paul said this all the time. He's saying, brethren, don't be ignorant. If Paul was here today, I'd say, well, Paul, too late. Because there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to the rapture. There's a lot of ignorance when it comes to Bible prophecy. Paul said, I will not have to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the shofar, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Six feet further to go, but they rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, you can't, you can't escape that word, comfort. I was taking Q&A one time, Brother Chris, and I said, listen, if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll get to you. After a few questions, this rude, arrogant guy pops up. He says, hey, man. I said, what, man? He said, wait a minute. He said, if the church ain't going to be on the earth during the tribulation period, who's going to be preaching the gospel? You know, one of those gotcha questions. Who's going to be preaching the gospel? I said, the Bible tells us who's going to be preaching the gospel. Who? Tell me. Who? I'm like, slow your roll, man. Calm down. Go to the book of Revelation, not right now, but go to Revelation, looking at chronologically, chapter 11, God raises up what? Two witnesses. These guys are going to be prophesying. These guys are going to be preaching. And guess what? Multitudes are going to get saved. How do I know multitudes are going to get saved? The Antichrist shuts them up by doing what? Kills them. And instead of the decency of a burial, oh, no, 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 I don't want these guys buried. I want the whole world to see them. You double-cross me, the same thing is going to happen to you. 
their bodies are lying in the streets of the city of Jerusalem. You know, back in 1901, C.I. Schofield was called a heretic. You know why they called him a heretic? Because in his commentary, he said one day in Revelation 11, the whole world will see the bodies of these two witnesses. The reason why they called him a heretic is because back then that would have been impossible for the whole world to see two dead bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem. Would they be calling him a heretic today? Oh, no. All these satellites and Sputnik, whatever else is up there, they can easily see two dead witnesses in the streets of the city of Jerusalem, specifically on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And then when they're done, because of their preaching, chapter 7, 144,000, and they are not, and I repeat, they are not the ding-dong hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> Who are they? They're Jews. How do I know they're Jews? 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not the church. They're not some cult out there. They're Jews. And they're preaching the gospel during the first half of the tribulation period. And multitudes are getting saved. When they're done, then you get to the last half of the tribulation period. Revelation 14, 6. God dispatches an angel to circumnavigate the globe to preach the everlasting gospel to them who dwell on the earth to every kindred, tongue, and nation. The gospel will be preached while you and I are up in heaven for a brief seven-year period of tribulation. And when that's all said and done, we get on white horses coming back to terra firma, coming back to planet Earth, where he will one day establish his kingdom for 1,000 years. So verse 27 of Daniel 9 is yet future from verses um, 25 to 26 already fulfilled verse 27 is yet to be fulfilled and in the midst of the week or in the middle of the week he shall cause a sacrifice and the oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate so the antichrist confirms that seven year peace treaty with the Jewish people. And then they're going to go back to animal sacrifice, and the third temple will stand up there. You've got to come to Israel with us in the fall. I'll take it to the Temple Institute, where they're making all the preparations for the rebuilding of a third Jewish temple. In the midst of that tribulation period, he will break that treaty, and the Jews will flee for their very lives. What did Jesus call it in Matthew 24, 15? The abomination of desolation. When that happens, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 16, then let them which be in Judea flee where? To the mountains. What mountains are we talking about? The mountains of Petra. We were just there at Petra this past September. I love walking a half mile down that seek, S-I-Q, which is Arabic for a, a, a large, narrow gorge. And you walk and you walk and walk, and just as you get to the very end of that seat, man, the whole thing just opens right up, and you're looking at that five-story high treasury right there in Petra. As I told Chris this morning, we don't find the word P-E-T-R-A in Bible, Petra, but the geographical location is evident. Isaiah 16, 1 and 4. Isaiah 26, 20. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Revelation 12, 6. Revelation 12, 14. 
that will be ground zero, where God will shelter and feed the Jewish people for the last half of that week, the last half of that 70th week, the last half of that seven-year period of tribulation. Then Jesus Christ returns, and based on Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, he goes to Petra. He'll pick up that surviving Jewish remnant, Take him to Jerusalem where, Zechariah 14, 4 says, and on that day shall his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And then he will establish his kingdom from the holy city of Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Why do I go to Israel so much the way that I do? I want to get a foretaste of that kingdom. I want to walk in the footsteps of my Messiah. I want to walk in the footsteps of my Savior, Amen. And when I go to the whole, I mean, I do, I mean, the things you just pick up out there, as the late Zola Levy used to say, 10 days in Israel is like equivalent to four years of Bible college. You pick up so much when you're out there, and you'll get rid of a lot of that Western thinking as well. Oh, yeah. Not only do you pick up a lot of Hebrew, but you will get rid of a lot of that Western thinking that's out there in the church today. I'm here to tell you, folks, that one day, you're all going to be Israelis, and I'm convinced. Listen to me now. I'm convinced that one day you will be speaking that pure language. You'll be speaking that pure tongue. Hey, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Oh, yeah, no doubt you, he knew all those other languages, but his main tongue, his main dialect was Ivrit, Hebrew. He knew the Hebrew language very very well. Can I just pick, just show something to you quickly, and we're, we're going we're to close up right here. Let's go to the Gospel of John. i got to show you this. I have a friend. Uh, he lives in Tiberias, uh, right on the shores of the Sea of, uh, of Galilee. John 21, he pointed out something interesting to me, proof that, of course, Jesus is the prophesied Mashiach, the prophesied Messiah of uh, Israel. I want you to look with me, uh, please, John chapter number uh, 21, and notice with me in verse number 11. John 21. Now, this was his post-resurrection appearance. He's there in Tiberias. He's there near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, actually, let me, let me start on verse 10. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which he have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, and a hundred and fifty and three, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. How many fish were there? There's a number. But isn't that an odd number? One hundred and fifty-three correspond to a certain Hebrew word, ani. Now, you know there's always numerical value to every Hebrew alphabet, right? Every Hebrew concept there. Aleph would be the numerical value of one. Nun, 50. Yod, 10. That's 61. Ani is I in Hebrew. When I say ani, I, me, I. Then Elohim would correspond to Aleph, 1. Lamed, 30, Resh, 6, Hey, 5, Yo, 10, Mem, 40, 92. 92 
61 plus 61 is 153. Ani Elohim. I am God. Kowinky dink? No, no, man. There's a reason why you have an off number there. 153. Only God in the flesh. God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, can do something like this. And no doubt, he would have known all four of those languages. But his main tongue, his main tongue was Hebrew. And I believe that's going to be the language you and I are going to be speaking, not only in heaven, but also, folks, in the kingdom to come. But before you can have the kingdom, before you can have the second coming, before you can have a seven-year period of tribulation, up next on God's calendar of activities is the rapture of the church. First Corinthians 15, 51, 52, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. At a guy, you know, people love to challenge you. And I don't mind that, you know. <laughs> just, just don't give me your opinions. Give me scripture. Right. How do you know it's a shofar as a trumpet in the Bible? Because I read my Bible. I read my King James Bible, man. Read Joshua chapter 6, verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 13. Five times it says what? The priest, the Kohen Haggadol, blew the trumpet of... Ram's horns. A ram's horn in Hebrew is shofar. Everyone say shofar. Shofar is so good. Your Hebrew's getting better, man. But in this case, I have a Yemenite shofar. It's a longer version, not the ram's horn. The rabbis at the Kotel, the Western Wall, or in the synagogues love blowing the Yemenite shofar. But at times, you see them blowing the ram's horn. Shofar. So whenever I see that word trumpet in the Bible, no doubt it is referring to the shofar. It is referring to the ram's horn. One day, Jesus Christ will shout. What you going to shout? Possibly come up hither. Revelation 4, 1 and 2. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Archangel will shout. Who's the archangel in the Bible, by the way? Michael. How do I know that? Read Jude, verse 9. Yeah, Michael the archangel. So we know that's not Gabriel. That's Michael. Okay? And then it says... With the sound of the trumpet. So I'm making a connection there that the archangel is going to blow that shofar, that trumpet. And when he does, it will be so loud, all the born-again dead in Christ. From Pentecost up until now are coming up out of those graves. So that means I'm going to see my mom again, brother. You and my mom were pretty close. You're going to see your dad again. We're going to see all of Jim. You're going to see Jim again. We're going to see all of our departed loved ones again. Now, I'm here to tell you that there's a great reunion coming. Amen? And then Christians still alive at the time of the rapture will instantaneously be transformed from mortal to immortal, perishable to imperishable, corruptible to incorruptible, and faster than you can blink the human eye, you're going to meet him in the sky. I just made that one up. I'm using that one. And he's going to take us to the Father's house. Help me. And when he takes us to heaven, we will be there for 
through seven years. While the earth below goes through a seven-year period of tribulation, which there is no connection to the church whatsoever. None. And another guy tell me, Brother Tom, you teach escapism. That's not biblical. Escapism isn't biblical. That's not in the Bible. Well, sir, the problem here is you're just not reading your Bible. You need to read what Jesus said in Luke 21, 36. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. Escape what? All these things, that seven-year period that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. I was in Corinth three and a half weeks ago, right where Paul stood, right at the Bema. There was a sign on there in English and in Greek. It said, Bema. Paul stood right before that. No, though he stood right before Galileo, right there at the Bema. And yet Paul used that opportunity to teach about the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10, Romans 14.12, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. You and I have a face-to-face -face interview with the king of the Jews, whether you like it or not. It has nothing to do with your salvation because your salvation sealed, amen? Your salvation was right there, one at the cross, man. We're sealed unto the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. What's the purpose of the Bema? To determine what reward we will get. One crown, two, three, maybe all five crowns for Brother Tom. I'm not being facetious either. I just, you know, I think, I think he's a great Bible teacher. Amen. But there's going to be rewards for the believer. That's a judgment for the believer, for the believer only. The judgment for the unbeliever, no. That, you know what that is? That's the retribution, man. That's the great white throne judgment. Remember that video we watched from Tim Lee back in the day, the great white throne Judgment. He did a good job preaching on the great white throne judgment. Yes, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that's reserved for the unbeliever. But this, that event right there, that is for believers only. When we rise to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. So, no signs precede that event. No prophecies have to be fulfilled. In other words, what? Keep your ear hole on. Keep looking up right. and pray, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. The Bible opens in the book of Genesis 3 with the birth of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, they call it. The first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of the Messiah. And then it ends off with the return of Jesus Christ. Even so come Lord Jesus. And faster than we can blink the human eye, he's going to take us out of here. And we're going to receive a glorified body, and he's going to take us to the Father's house. I don't have a whole lot of time to develop it now because it's getting late. But you and I are going to participate in a beautiful Jewish wedding. Right out of John 14, 1 through 3.
and they still practice those Jewish weddings in Israel today. I actually participated in one of them. I was just walking down the old city of Jerusalem, and they were all dancing after a wedding. And those guys get down with their bad selves, man. And I was, I was walking. The guy's like, we need one more. I'm like, excuse me, we need one more. One of them randomly grabbed me by my arm and dragged me into the dance. And we're all, it was crazy, man. Those celebrations go on for seven days. Seven days. We're going to have a celebration up in heaven for seven years. Doesn't get any better than that, amen? Jesus is coming soon, but the question is, is he coming for you? Every head bowed, every eye closed, and we'll be dismissed. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I would assume everyone here knows the Lord, but you might have that one person that doesn't know the Lord as their Savior. And if you are here tonight and you're saying, August, I do not have the assurance of going to heaven when I die. I don't want to go to hell for the rest of eternity. I don't want to be left behind at the rapture. I need to get saved here and now. I need someone to show me from the Bible how I can know for sure without a shadow of a doubt that one day heaven will be my destination. And if I'm talking to you, all you simply need to do is slip your hand up and put it down. Just slip it up and put it down. August, pray for me. I need to be saved. August, pray for me. I need to be born again. I want to trust in Jesus as my Savior today. Do we have anyone like that here at East Bay Baptist Church? Just slip your hand up and put it down. August, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. Anybody at all? Let me ask you this. If you are saved, born again, ready to go, whether by death or by rapture, you know you're ready. If you're saved, let me see your hands. August, I'm saved, and I know it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Praise the Lord. Many, many hands up here tonight. Praise God. Thank you so very much. I'm going to pray. Joseph's going to come up here. If God is speaking to you, man, I'm going to be right here at the altar. You want to talk to me about anything or pray with you about something, I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you. Ladies, there's other women here you can pray with. Uh, Heather, Chrissy, my wife, they'll, they'll pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. But if God is speaking to you about something tonight, talk to him. Amen? Talk to him. Father, thank you for your message. Thank you for your word. Lord, we're here tonight to give you the glory for everything. Lord, we don't manipulate the scriptures. We don't try to make a mountain out of a molehill. We don't abuse prophecy as many are doing within the church today. We just want to look at it, Lord, for its plain sense interpretation. Because if the plain sense makes sense, we don't have, we're not to look for any other sense, or we're going to end up with nonsense. And there's so much nonsense out there when it comes to Bible prophecy, leading to people uh, uh, being confused because of prophecy being abused and misused. And so, Father, I'm asking you, Lord, to speak to us right now, and may you be glorified in everything that is said and done. We continue to pray for the many health issues, Lord. We continue to pray for Betty, for her healing, Patty, for her healing, Nancy, for her healing, many others within the church going through some type of health issues for their healing. For our pastor, Tony Barboza and Don, as they're out, Lord, in Pensacola, that your hand be upon them right now. Be with them and give them grace, Lord. Thank you so much for such a a good church family of people who love and care for one another. And I pray that our church will continue to be a beacon, a lighthouse, 
uh, to the people of East Providence and the surrounding areas for that matter. And Heavenly Father, may you now be glorified in everything that is said and done here today. Bless the invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.